0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is October 20th, 2015. This is episode 1664 of the Survival Podcast. It's Tuesday, so it's a Just Jack episode. It's going to be kind of a laid-back Just Jack episode. I'm going to talk more about what we're doing here at Nine Mile Farm, uh, our evolving plans as they continue to evolve and change as we look at where we can take this property next. And this is a two-sided show, so... Hold tight if you're not big on the farm and ag topics or whatever, because it's really two things. It is that I think that if that's your your bent, so to speak, or if you like hearing about that, you'll really enjoy today's show. But today's show is also a lot more about thinking and about evolving your plans and not being married to your ideas and concepts and and uh, the things that you come up with. You think you can do a certain way, whether that's building a business, whether that's running a community. It doesn't matter what it is; it's the thinking that's the key. It's the most critical skill that we talk about here at the Survival Podcast, the ability to think and evolve planning. Whether we're putting together a disaster preparedness plan, whether we're figuring out how to handle our investments, whether we're making a career decision, making decisions about how we're going to educate ourselves or our children, where we're going to live, this is what TSP is about, how to find a solution to these concerns for ourselves and do the best that we can, rather than be told by people in charge, whatever the hell that means, what we're supposed to do. It seems to me that's one of the biggest weaknesses America has, and the developed world has now. We have people that cannot think, and even those of us that do think, it's, it's like any muscle. If you do not exercise and use it and continue to use it, it will atrophy, and then you do what's easy, and then all of a sudden someone's doing it for you. You're taking the escalator instead of the stairs, metaphorically speaking. So, I hope you enjoy today's show no matter what your your plans are as to whether or not you're ever going to, I don't know, grow a duck. But I think you will enjoy it if you give it a shot. Before we get into that, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultant, the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest. Invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it, but you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody that doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend or themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest, level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over, the kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor of the day number two today, Ready Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need, ready made, ready to go at ReadyMadeResources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it from the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it at Ready Made Resources. 12 volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects? Check, they've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long term storage food? You want it by the can? Or by the case. They've got it. Do you want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers. They've got that. You want gamma lids for your 5-gallon buckets? Got it, check, no problem. You want to start canning? Whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators, got that, too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, readymaderesources.com. Next up, let's take a look at Bob Wells' plant of the week. Every week, Bob Wells has a perennial plant that we can put in our own backyards or front yards or wherever we're living for that matter that can help feed us and do so season after season. Today's is the LSU Purple Fig. The LSU Purple Fig is adaptable from zone seven to nine, very reliable, prolific producer of early to late delicious figs. Bob considers this one of the best figs to come along for some time. Very acclimated to fluctuating weather in the south. Very sweet, does not require a pollinator. Best to pick a few days after the fruit turns purple. Bobwell specializes in edible landscape, plants, and trees, including fruit trees, berry plants, vine fruit, and nut trees as well. It's hard to find, specialty trees. You can find this plant more at Bobwell's Nursery dot com I've, i 've have struggled with growing figs. I mean, I thought that would be one of the things I could grow very well here, despite the harsh conditions. It seemed like if anything could handle it, it would be figs that are a desert plant but boy i've i 've not had a single fig die i 've had figs look like they 're dead they have all come back they have all survived, and they 've even produced a fig or two. None of them are thriving yet, but you know when we tell you about our plans uh, Today, maybe, maybe in time, that'll start to happen on its own. It certainly could. I hope so. I do like <laughs> fresh figs. Those of you who've never eaten a fresh fig, find a way to get your hands on one. If you think you know figs because of something like a fig Newton cookie, you do not. You really do not. A fresh fig is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And, you can grow them in a lot of parts of the country that you would think are too far north and get too cold. Uh, specifically, if you look at things like Chicago Hardy for those of you that are further north and take some extra precautions. Uh, at one time in America, figs were a primary uh, means of providing sweetening uh, on homesteads and farms. You dry your figs out and you chop them up. and A lot of old recipes they don't call for sugar or honey. Uh, they call for chopped, diced figs used as a sweetener. Just a little thing I thought I'd throw in there for you. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1664. This is an interesting uh, group that we have here from Alex Shrugged. I have uh, Surprise, New Amsterdam Becomes New York. I have the English Colony Mix and Match. And I have Slavery for Life and Uncle Tom's Tragedy. Uh, There's no wrong one to pick here. They're all cool. Uh, They all tell us a lot of interesting things. Believe it or not, Surprise, New Amsterdam Becomes New York will tell us where the term Yankee comes from. Um, let me read the, the English colony mix and match but this is one I would slavery for life and Uncle Tom's tragedy is a huge part of American history here this would be one to get over to TSP Wiki and read for yourself. Remember, we do history because it gives us context with helps us with thinking and recognizing patterns when they come along. In school, they taught you this. We study history so that we won't repeat the mistakes of the past. That is a lie, and we should stop telling our children that. We study history because some idiot will always repeat the mistakes of the past, and it's good that we recognize it when it happens because it's going to. Okay, so here we go. The English colony mix and match. At this point, the original 13 colonies of the American Revolution are still forming up. Many of the names of the colonies are in use and recognizable, but the actual regions they describe are changing and will continue to change. For example, Maine receives its royal charter this year, but within a year, Maine will be absorbed into the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Currently, there is a New Haven colony, but this will be absorbed into Connecticut Colony. There is also East and West Jersey uh, there is no North or South Carolina yet, it's just the province of Carolina. The province of Pennsylvania will be established in 1681, and the Georgia colony will be established in 1733. My take by Alex Shrugged. When I was researching this segment, I vaguely remembered that Florida was out there as a British colony at the time of the American Revolution, but it remained loyal to the king. It is easy to see why. It is a very late addition, so it hadn't experienced British rule for very long. It had been a Spanish colony most of the time. Quebec was in a similar situation having once been a French colony. It didn't really have all the build-up of grievances against the British yet. It had plenty of grievances, don't get me wrong, but not enough for rebellion. It was just bad timing. The other British colonies that remained loyal to the king during the American Revolution were the British West Indies, Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, and Bermuda. See, my thinking here is, isn't it interesting how the same government can be better tolerated by somebody who's experienced less of it? I mean, the same stuff, just for less of a period of time. This is – and then the comparative abuses, right? So if you were a a Spanish colony and the English come in and they still suck, but they don't suck as bad as the Spanish, you just know there's people going, what do you want us to do, go back to being a Spanish colony? As though there's no possibility of a progression forward toward greater liberty. I think this is in many ways how we're living today when you tell people the problems that we have with an oppressive, bloated government that we have in this country, and when you actually start talking about the true solutions, which are decentralization and revocation of government power, okay? Then all of a sudden, well, we should just go back to you know, being a colony of England then. I've actually been told that. I've actually been told that when I said, I, you know, there was an ele- the last election. I'm like, there's no reason for me to vote in this election. We should go be back subject to subjects of King of England. That was actually a response to that. What? In the words of Stewie Griffith, do you even hear the words that are coming out of your mouth? You know, do you even hear yourself talk? I don't think people do because people aren't thinking. They're not thinking. We have a belief that if our form of government is the least currently abusive form, that it's as good as we can do. I don't believe that's the case. I believe we can always do more. And the only way we're going to be able to do more is to continuously step outside of the system. Because I want to read a little bit to you from this... In fact, I'm going to read the whole segment. Slavery for Life and Uncle Tom's Tragedy, because... This is exactly what I'm talking about coming out of this. They progress so well to each other. The Maryland legislature has passed a law that makes all Negro slaves within its borders slaves for life. Any slave brought into Maryland will henceforth be declared as slaves for life. Their offspring shall be slaves for life. There is also a provision that punishes any white woman for marrying a slave by making her a slave for life. But Lord Baltimore has had part of that law repealed. Because his white maid servant marries a slave. He does not want to lose her to the slave owner. But everything else in the law is okay with him. Apparently it's now a law. And this is why I don't equate following the law with doing the right things. Sometimes the law is the wrong thing like this time. You could read Alex Trug's take yourself if you want to go to the wiki. But that's exactly what I'm saying. Just because something's law doesn't make it right. And... There's a point at which good men decide that I'm not going to comply with this any longer. Now, you have to be smart about how you do that because the state is violence. The state is force. The state is the threat of violence, but it means to make good on the threat. At any time that you disrupt what it wants. But there is a point where people have to say, no. I'm not going to participate in this any longer. And there's a lot of ways you can do that without running so afoul of a state that you end up like in a prison cell. I'm just saying. It's my take by Jack Spierko. With that, um, let's uh, get into the main topic of today's show. Uh, I, I think this, again, is going to be a pretty good show for you, whether you're typically into the agricultural stuff or not. Uh, we're going to discuss today how we're going to evolve our plan versus being married to our ideas And as you guys know that have been listening to me for a long time, I'm a very passionate person, and I think things out really well. And when I make a plan, I try to stick to it and I charge at it. So for me, that's a challenge at times. The key thing for many people who want liberty and freedom in their lives is it doesn't matter if you're farming or in any kind of business or anything else, you have to be able to do this. You have to be able to do this because sooner or later, you're going to think you're on the right path, find out you're on the wrong path, and the time to make the change is as soon as you identify that. That doesn't mean jumping out in front of a car, metaphorically, right? That means that you have to be strategic about getting from one place to another, changing that course, changing that direction. But the corrective act needs to be immediate. And sometimes the way that we get there is by just stop. Just stop for a minute. So... Okay, I'm not sure where to change course yet, but I know this path is wrong. So just like if you get lost in the woods, what do you do? Stop. But too often people come up with an idea or a design or a concept, and they become married to the vision of that idea or concept. And when reality shows them a flaw, they try to just ignore reality. There's some good from that. There really is. There's some great things about that because sometimes it's just you got to keep trying until you figure it out. But the only way that works is if you're willing to accept that maybe a piece of this is flawed. So, yeah, I, I know everybody said I couldn't do it. I believed I could do it. I'm trying to do it. It's not quite working. Okay, let me stop and examine it and figure out how to adjust it so I can make it work. Everybody likes to talk about how many times Thomas Edison got the light bulb wrong before he got one that actually worked. I think the important thing to understand is when something didn't work, he tried something else. It wasn't just the total accumulated failures that created success. It was a willingness to to, to have the failure, but then to accept the feedback from that failure and that observation and move forward. This is how we need to do everything. This is how we need to pay, be able to plan our disaster planning. This is how we need to have decisions about our family budget, is, is all of these types of things. If we're doing something that really doesn't work for everybody in a community, where that community is a nuclear family or a neighborhood, then we have to examine it and say, okay, why isn't it working for everybody? And if it's because one person is trying to be a problem, that's different. But in general, if it's just not functioning, then we need to change the functionality so that it serves everybody as well as it possibly can knowing that not everybody's going to be happy or not every decision is going to be 100% right, but that's what we were striving for. We we do our best to get there, and we settle for what we find to work. But let's start off with why people get married to ideas and why it's bad. Um, There's a certain amount of pride in this, but I I don't think it's so much pride as it is. The the, the smarter a person is, actually, the the, the easier this is for it to occur, because you know you've got something. You know this can work. So your, your, your attitude is, if I just keep at it, eventually it'll work. Well, there has to come a point where you say to yourself, as I've talked about before, with the story of a fly in the window. You look at a fly in the window, and the fly can see outside through his little fly fly eyes of like a billion eyes or whatever it is they have. And he's just buzzing his ass off on that window, bouncing off it, bouncing off it, bouncing off it. Well, he knows very well that outside is what he's looking for. He wants to be outside. He knows that the, the there's something preventing him from getting there. And he knows that he, if he gives up, he's just going to end up laying dead in the windowsill. Okay? But what he doesn't understand is the only thing that will happen if he keeps trying the way he's trying now is he'll tire out and end up dead in the windowsill sooner. The solution for the fly is to stop trying to go out the closed window and turn around and explore and look for another place. And Sooner or later, somebody will open a door and he can fly through that. But no, the fly's not a human. The fly can't think critically, so it keeps trying. And that alone tells us that trying doesn't work if we're trying the wrong way. Or another thing I like to explain to people is people talk about practice making perfect. No, practice of perfection makes perfect. If you practice poor technique or poor delivery, then no matter how much you practice, you're not actually going to get better at the end task. You'll get better at being bad. Makes me think of back in the days of basketball with Shaquille O'Neal. The guy was a terrible free throw shooter. And he was hacked. They called it Hack a Shack here in Dallas, where they got, you know, as soon as he got the ball, he's going to score inside. So they just. You know, somebody just foul him and hack him and knock him down, knock his arm down or whatever, so he couldn't shoot. And he'd go to the line, and the math worked out where every time this guy was inside, he was going to score 100 percent of the time and get two points. And if you fouled him and you were strategic about who fouled him, so you didn't have your good players fouling out, mathematically you were better off letting him shoot th- uh, free throws. So he would practice and practice and practice and practice and practice and practice and practice. And you're not talking about a guy that's not an amazing athlete here. But he just wasn't good, and his technique of shooting free throws was bad. And while he got a little bit better, he actually never got good enough to break the math. And nothing would change that because that's not his talent. So he was still a great basketball player. right? So I, last time I told this story, I had somebody really mad at me. I'm like, God, you guys get mad about things that just don't make any sense. It's just the facts here. That's why, you know... Shaq wore a clown nose to make fun of Don Nelson here uh, in a game against the Mavericks to, to kind of point that out. Like you're, He called it clown ball. So even Shaq could have good humor in this. So I think your fans of Shaq could have good humor in it as well. Anyway, but that's what I'm just trying to say. Like If, if you're married to an idea and you keep trying, no matter how hard you try, if the idea itself is flawed, a lot of times it will get worse, not better. And people get married to these ideas because of the, the one thing that can make them successful, a die-hard belief in themselves. And I don't want anybody to ever give that up because you, you, you also won't succeed without that. So we have to figure out how do we get unstuck and remain fluid in our decision-making. The first thing you have to do okay, is give yourself permission to be wrong and permission to fail. I was pretty fond of saying at the beginning of this show, uh, when, I, when I say beginning, I mean all the way back in 2008, when people would say, "I think that was technically wrong," or you know, this fact doesn't quite. I reserve the right to be wrong in my opinions. Okay, I reserve. I might speak with a, 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 a tone that exemplifies confidence because I'm a salesperson. Okay, first and foremost, that's why. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I grew up learning to speak that way. You don't get business from a customer if you don't sound like you're sure of what you're saying. So I might speak with a confidence that some people confuse as arrogance, but I always reserve the right to be wrong. You have to give yourself permission to fail. So you have to start out with an assessment and and an idea and a concept that I could be completely wrong about this and I might screw it up and it's okay to try anyway. And because of that, I have to be mindful that there could be a mistake but I can't let that paralyze me. I also have to realize another thing that I won't know I'm wrong until I try. And I can't assume that an immediate failure means I'm wrong. It might need a slight adjustment. But all along the way, as I'm making these slight adjustments, I have to you know, reserve back that I could be wrong about the entire concept, and it may be necessary to make a radical shift and change at some point, and I have to give myself permission to be okay with that. The next thing you have to do to get unstuck or to remain from just prevent it from ever happening is every once in a while, like I talked about earlier, you just stop. You just stop. You pause. Okay? I'm going to stop. Even when you think everything's good. And then you have to step out of the situation and say to yourself, if I wasn't me, if I was a consultant to myself that hired me to come in and look at this, And I came in and looked at this business or this farm or this garden or this interaction with children or this school or this educational program or whatever it is. And I I hired myself to come in. And And I knew nothing other than my basic knowledge about the subject matter. I didn't know all the things that have been tried. I didn't know uh, all of the the perception bias that that I have. I was told if I was not emotionally connected, do a little Buddhist thing and detach myself from the emotion, and step back and look at it and analyze it as though you have no dog in the hunt. It's not your circus and it's not your monkeys. So that's the thing. It is your circus. See that's the thing. We we people love that saying. I do. I just put out a, a meme of Lucille Ball. And she's got this, you know, that look that Lucille Ball used to get in her face, and it says that awful moment when you realize it is your circus and those are your monkeys. Well, we're pretty good at using that saying to t- tell ourselves, don't, don't attach yourself to this issue. It doesn't, doesn't matter. It doesn't really affect you, so let go of it. But what we have a hard time doing is when it is our issue, saying, okay, the best way to understand this is to pretend that it's not important to me did it succeed. And to look at it like an investor might or a consultant might at a distance. And when you do that, you see so many things that you just can't see when you've got your head down and you're doing what you're supposed to do, trying to get it done. So, with all of that in mind, let's take a look at some things that we're going to be doing on the property and as we do that, we'll talk about how we got to there. And again, the th- the chain of thinking that that, that brought us there. So I've been kind of you know talking for a while about doing quail in an aviary-based system. So an aviary is basically a big outdoor birdcage. And I want to be clear, I don't have any problem with anybody that raises quail in a rack system. In fact, I'm working with some folks to try to help bring more quail raising to the suburbs. And that will primarily be in a rack-based system, though we're trying to do it in a way where the birds can be taken out on the grass in their same caging. And and we're working out some technical things. And, boy, you want to talk about having to to learn from what you think versus what you realize uh, when you put birds on the ground. We're learning a lot with this one right now. And we'll be revealing some of this at the workshop coming up in in November here at at Namal Farm. Um, But so I took 130 quail that we are raising for that workshop for students to learn how to process quail it's the primary reason we're raising these These are not our long-term birds and i have them in a four by eight quail tractor with a a mesh bottom so that i don't kill them and they can't get out the bottom and i move that every day and it's heavy and what i learned really quick is you know that many birds produce a lot of waste and in that area it stinks um every time you move that thing like wow that's that's something that really is and it's it's too many birds for the area, there's no doubt, but in, until I get back and try to maybe build a second one and split them, uh, that's what it is for now. So I, I don't want to do it that way. I don't want to do it with a rack based system because I have three acres. So I want to make use of the space that I have. So, talking with John Dowie, he had this little kind of half greenhouse that he had built and he put his quail in there and they loved it, you know, and he was trying to figure out how to move that around more like a tractor and what have you, you know, and he sells, sells eggs to his market, so we have that kind of similar thing going on there. And I started looking at it and going, okay, well, a mobile system on a piece of ground with good pasture has challenges. But I don't need to worry about those challenges because I don't have good pasture. This is a complex system. There's not a lot of straight lines and open spaces, and where there are, everything's dead, and it's fixing to change and not be a lot of straight lines in open spaces. Um, I don't want to have to move this every day. I want to be able to leave, have my wife take care of the place for a day or two, and not have to have her move something heavy. And I want my birds to experience the ability to fly, to move around, to jump, to hop up on things, and, and what have you. So we started looking at the design of the Texas Forever greenhouse based on cattle panels, and realized how inexpensive that construction really is. And I came up with the idea that I was going to set up this little house thing of mine and have a two-sided system, and the birds would have 24 feet of run on both sides. And I realized, look at that. That's a dumb idea, Jack. That is a stupid idea. You're going to take a perfectly good outbuilding, put these two big wings on it, put holes in it, and mess it all up. And what if you ever want to sell a property? Think about the advice you give people all the time. You'd say, don't do that, dummy, so That's what I'm talking about. It's detaching. So you come up with this idea because it just seems to fit. And then you, you, if you step back and say, okay, let's pretend it's not my, my circus of monkeys, or in this case, not my cattle panels and quail, what would you say? I'd say, don't do that. Okay, is the idea itself sound? Yes. Is there a better place for it? I bet there is. Where would that better pit place be? It would be closer to my center of primary activity, which is going to be my zone one in my food forest. Okay, that's, that's over here, not over there. There would be water nearby accessible and power nearby accessible okay that's that's just what we just said that's that's what that is it would be relatively flat cuz it would make the construction of this thing much easier there would be a long straight open space where i could stretch out 48 50 feet and it would kind of be out of the way well that would be my back fence row over by my beehives by my back outbuilding Because that outbuilding has water, that outbuilding has power, there's a straight line there. I I don't really do anything. In fact, right now, right where that thing would go, there's a giant pile of bush and brush that I would have to get rid of. But it's been there for over a year. So clearly I have no designs on doing anything with that space. That's a good place for it. So we're going to put it there, and instead of having a house, there'll be no house. The thing is a house. What do you need to have a building in there for? What possible reason? No good reason. So the way we're designing this now, it'll be four sections, each of three cattle panels. That's 150 inches, call it a bit over um, 12 feet. You always say 12 feet, but 48 inches, you'd have 12 feet, so it's 12 foot 6 inches. So each section is 12 foot 6 inches. The Texas Prepper greenhouse design is based on a box that's about 12 feet long and 8 feet wide, built out of 2x4s. By going to two x eights or two x twelves, when I price it and get the reality check of the cost of this thing, I'll make a decision. How important are those next, you know, few inches to me uh, in raising up the height? Uh, maybe two by tens is a middle ground type thing. But I'll build basically what amounts to a uh, fifty foot ish long raised bed out of pressure treated lumber. Yes, pressure treated lumber. It's not as bad as you think it is. I'm not going to go into that today. But just trust me, it's not the horrible, horrible thing that it it, it honestly was at one time. Um, It just works best. It's the best tool for the job. And then there'll be a little, like, a giant um, covered wagon-type structure with all these cattle panels interlaced going the distance for me. Great rigid structure. And then it'll be sectioned into four sections with simple doors that don't have to be expensive because it's just... It's basically chicken wire separating them with a door that you can open to walk through. And going 10 feet wide, but up on a 2x8s or or wider, depending on the budget. Again, you'll be able to walk in there. You might have to hunch a little bit if you're tall like me. My wife will probably be able to walk in there pretty much upright. We'll fill those 2x8s uh, in though fairly well. Let's say if if the 2x8s almost level. If we go with 2x12s, uh, which is what I, I think is best, maybe 6 inches of that. So you still drop down 6 inches inside the, the wood. And then we'll cover the whole thing with inexpensive chicken wire. And we'll put 60% shade cloth down the length of it. That can be easily rolled up in the winter and let the sun in when you want to let the sun in. And we're going to put in irrigation, which would be dead simple, half-inch pipe. Simple as you can imagine irrigation for this thing on a timer that will water whatever's growing on automation and automation we'll talk about more in a minute. I got to automate a lot of things around here just so that it always gets done because we get so distracted with the, how big this property really is when you start trying to deal with a property that requires irrigation, at least on some level for about three to four months out of the year. So, When that's finished, what we'll basically have are four paddocks for our quail. And you open the door, and they go to the next paddock. You open the door, and they go to the next paddock. You move their food and water. In each of those sections, we'll put a small bin. Actually, we'll have a bin that moves from one to the next as it fills up. that will be a composting bin. And that bin, you throw all your compostables in there, and the quail go in there and compost. And when it gets to a certain point, you dump it out and begin the turning process to complete it when the quail process it to the level that you're, you're comfortable with. And a small bin that will also be in there so that they have a good dust bath that's, that's got DE in it or diatomaceous earth in it to keep them healthy. But we'll be growing crops for them. We'll be able to just seed that will be constantly disturbed, constantly uh, applied with new nutrients as the quail manure it. And then three weeks of rest in between is plenty of time to, think, to grow out inexpensive things like, like rye and oak grass and clovers, etc., and then, kind of inspired by the microgreens thing, you take standard-sized trays, you put a shelf down one side of it, you also have misters in there to help keep it cool. Those misters can be used to irrigate those trays. You seed those trays with whatever mix you want, and that keeps them up out of the range of the quail from tearing them up. If they go up there and eat a bit, so what? It's for them anyway. And when you're, you grow those out for about a week, and they, they grow into this big, furry, green mat, you just peel them out like sod and lay them on the ground. And we'll be building... All types of diversity in there. It'll be awesome. And insect pests will gravitate toward it. It's cool. It's watered. There's tons of plant life in there. Excellent quail fodder, right? The quail will eat the insects. The quail will eat the grass. Don't care. There's nothing in there for me really at all. So if the insects chew on something before they get chewed on by the quail, don't care. Very, very simple system, but the first of its kind ever. Which means... It might suck. It might totally fail. I might have to adjust it 27 different ways to get it right, but we're going to try it because it will let us produce a premium product. I don't believe anybody right now is producing a pastured, a truly pastured quail egg. That's what this will be. And there's more to it than that, but I just kind of want to tell you that's one of the things we're doing, and we're doing it radically different than our original thought. And the main reason is we've, we've kind of come up against the labor limit, how much work Dorothy and I want to do. Everything that we add now has to be simple, easy, enjoyable, and profitable. If it's not those things, we're not gonna do it. We're just not gonna and we have to time its introduction to a time in our life where it becomes part of the flow and it it doesn't add to a burden. So right now we're getting ready for the, the workshops, we've got the holidays coming up, we're just gonna start building this thing and we'll ease into it. And I think a lot of us can learn from that. We try to do too much too fast. Next, and this is kind of exactly what I'm talking about, microgreens. John Dowie came here, did a great class on microgreens. I grew a bunch of microgreens. I've got a rack. I'm ready to roll with it. You know what? I don't need one more thing in my life right now. We'll eventually go into it, and we'll actually do it for a profit. But right now, you know, the next microgreens, I'm going to grow. I'm growing for John's class, and that is it. That is all. Nothing else. And... You know, maybe we'll grow some for Thanksgiving or something like that to have on the table. But this is going to be a spring introduction to our customer base. And it's, again, because we've said, okay, we've looked at this, and John and a lot of people grow them indoors. And we've said, I don't want to do that. We need to set up an outdoor facility design. We have an old outdoor sink that we could do washing in. I also have a sink that's already an outdoor sink built into our, our nursery. We have to look at it and say, does that work to do our washing? It probably does. We probably want to do some redesign of our, our smaller outbuilding so that we won't keep the racks in the front garage, but in the back garage, back right in the heart of the Zone 1 area where the activity level is high. And we need to get this in a linear layout where it makes complete and perfect sense where we could bring somebody in that was house sitting or an intern and say here and train them in one day how to maintain that piece of it. And until we're ready to do it that way, okay, we now know it works. We now know what the margin is. We've talked to our customers about it. They're all interested in buying it. We know it's a hit from a profit standpoint. So now we have to slide into it in a way that logistically makes sense so that we don't stress ourselves out. And since for the next couple weeks what we're worried about is food, getting everything cleaned up, getting everything ready, finalizing the schedule, making sure the students come here, it's just not the time for something new. So we just punt that. We punt that out to about Thanksgiving. And when I get into Thanksgiving and Christmas, my life gets easier. And I can slowly implement that into that period. And, you know, by the time we come into spring, we should be up full tilt-bore running with a microgreens product for our customers. But it'll wait. It'll wait. Now, if we were figuring out how are we going to eat next week, we would accelerate that because that's a known, a quantifiable known. So I'm not saying always punt everything. I'm saying make it based on your lifestyle and the timing and the things you need. Uh, the next, the, the tea is this kind of the same thing. I've talked about this before. I've started sourcing different bulk herbs and things like that. I've come up with some amazing blends. Uh, we could just throw them all into jars or, or bags right away and start selling them to our customers. We're just gonna wait. Again, after this event, that's gonna be like my first new thing that I bring out to my customer base. It'll be a perfect time of year. We'll be able to bring that out about a week before Thanksgiving. When everybody's trying to figure out what do I get for all these extra things for Christmas, we'll we'll probably make a big splash with the teas. So for those that haven't heard me talk about this before, we've been working really hard to encourage certain herbs, specifically mints on the property. We'll continue to do that. But I started thinking, you're doing that so you can have a product. Somebody else is already growing that product. Why don't you pull yourself out, pretend it's not your circus and not your monkeys, and not be married to your ideas, and say to yourself, self, what would you tell this person if they were your client go find sources of these things make you're always going to have to rely on some outside source anyway you're not going to do a hundred percent on your property there's going to be some ingredient in there so why not find the best quality stuff you can put together a, a, a spread of five or six custom blended teas with specific reasoning behind them build the marketing for that and just stuff comes in a scoop of this a scoop of that two scoops of this two scoops of that mix it up Put it in that jar, label it. There's a product. It's $6.99. Okay, since that's easy, we're going to do that. And the timing for that is exactly the week after the event. I'll have all my blends selected by then because right now it's the hard work of tasting teas and going, yeah, that's pretty good. Figuring things out, figuring out your profit margins, putting them into a spreadsheet, making sure that they actually make the profit you think they do, and coming up with the packaging, etc. So we'll roll that out then. And that was a big shift because we were really big on, hey, we're going to plant this whole area out here with mint. We'll have so much mint, it'll be a great product grown on the farm. That hasn't changed, but we're not going to wait for that because it'll never be 100% grown on the farm anyway. It just won't be. This is not a place, well, we might be able to grow a lot of mint here. I mean, that's something else that we've come up with. Like, so the ducks don't eat mint. So any place I have an erosive problem, if I can irrigate it, that I need to put ground cover on it that the ducks are a problem with, plant mint, because it'll grow, it'll spread. As long as I can irrigate it, it'll survive, and they won't eat it. Okay, um, Irrigation. We've made a decision not only to continue to expand our irrigation, but to go on automation with it and to make the investment in the infrastructure to get all of our irrigation, hopefully by spring, on an automated process. And the places that we don't have it on automation to make sure it's damn easy to do it manually. So by re- even if we have to do some areas still manually, by reducing the place, the number of manual places we have to do it, it'll be more consistent in getting it done. And it's exactly what I said. It's it's you know, two things happened this week that we didn't expect, and then you get behind on that. And next thing you know, an area is dried out. And now you're catching up on that area. Now this area is drying out. It, it, it just can't be. It can't be. We went on vacation. We came back. Neither my intern, neither my uh, the hired helper, nor my nephew did everything right, and nothing was that bad, but it was bad enough. It was bad enough that our our thought was we can't do this, we we can't go on vacation in summer. We can the little errors aren't that big in spring and fall or winter, but they're huge in summer, in our harsh 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 hundred degree summers. We we can't have this, and we realize with automation we can. And I was under the assumption that it was going to cost me a fortune to do. And by talking to someone that knows more about automating irrigation than me, Nick Ferguson, I was able to understand exactly how I could do it. And now I'm making a, a, a plan and I'm developing a, a, a print and figuring out all my zones and figuring out I actually have power distributed on this property very, very well. It's it's not really a big deal to get power to the solenoids to come back to the controller And when we put in some other stuff that we're going to do this fall, we'll make sure, even if I don't initially have it on automation, that the wiring goes in with the pipe. And that's a huge mistake. I could have just run wiring with all my pipe, cheap wire, and gotten to it later. And now I have so much more work to do because I didn't understand at the time that that was how simple it was. But I've got ways figured out to compensate for it and to actually take the work and have the work create expansion Versus just be retroactive work at the same time. I'll talk more about that in a bit. We've got to go on automated irrigation. We have to. We have to. Um, the next thing is the west pasture. So I've made a decision that going into next year, we're really going to focus on one small area of the property. The total of it is just under an acre. And we're going to put 90% of our efforts and management into that and let everything else go on on this automation thing and, and basically just cut back things that don't need to be growing or graze them with the birds and put all of the intensive love, so to speak, and additions and additional infrastructure and additional mulch and all materials and all all things of all investment and love to that one little area. And then I say, we should have done that in the beginning. If I could go back uh, three years, that's what we would have done. We'd be further ahead now. But yet there's big vacant field out here in the West. I'm going to go jack with that anyway, in spite of everything I just said. And, and here's why. Uh, there's a single name as to why. Alan Savory. Alan Savory completed my mental walk that Jeff Lawton started me on. When Jeff – I saw, first saw Jeff Lawton's Green in the Desert, and I realized one of the things he was saying there is a lot of these problems that we can solve with this type of thinking and with this type of agriculture – um we'd like to believe that if we did nothing that nature would heal the damage. But we've done so much damage in certain areas, we have to do something to fix it. And then Alan Savory came along. And I watched his TED Talk, and I watched some of his other presentations, and I saw him put up a slide. And the slide was a really bad-looking field. Really, really bad. Badlands type stuff, like Badlands in the Dakotas type stuff. Might have even, I think it was in Wyoming actually. There's just this fence of barbed wire running, and the left and the right side of the fence looked identical. And he said, "Do you know what the difference is between the left and the right side of the fence? This one side of the fence has been grazed, completely uncontrolled grazing, just free-range cattle, okay." and it's been abused, and it hasn't been managed, and the, the cattle haven't been rotated, and, and, and that's why it looks so awful. I said, so the other side of the fence that looks the same is National Park, and there's been no grazing on it, and, and, and very little to no human activity for almost a 100 years, and yet they look the same. This is improperly managed, and this is left to itself with nature for nature to fix it. And neither will recover unless we step in and create cycles of recovery for the system. Okay, so when I look at that field that no one's touched except the students that drove to park on it, basically no ducks have been there, I haven't been there, we put a pond in the bottom, but the, the, the rest of the field we've done nothing to for months. There's not a blade of grass in it. It's all dead litter, at least. It's not completely bare soil or something, but it's dead. And when it rains, and it's supposed to start raining this week, it'll start to green up, and it'll grow little stubby vegetation, and it'll bake in the sun when the, when, the, when the heat comes back next season, and it'll roast it to the ground brown again, and it'll just keep doing that. And every bit of vegetation that manages to eke out an existence there, I can do a little bit by putting ducks on it, but it's not growing much of what they'll eat, so they're not processing it. So they're not processing, so it goes dead. So it's not being disturbed, it's not being eaten, it's not being processed, it's not being mashed into the soil, it's got rock a couple inches underneath it, it's oxidizing into brown nothingness. Something has to change. So, like, If I don't do anything at all, 10 years from now it'll look the same way. So the time to act is now. So how do we act with a low input, highly effective system? And what we're going to do is we're going to put in five. This is what the the class is going to be doing. We're going to put in five berms. We're not going to dig anything except one trench across to put in the one piece of feeder pipe to get water to the far fence line. So that's about a 50-foot trench. That's the one. In fact, not even 50 feet because the berm is going to come where that trench is. And we're going to dig a trench probably about 15 feet to bury the pipe and do it in such a way you can drive a truck over where that pipe's buried without crushing the pipe. And then the pipe can come up on top of the ground and we're just gonna take, we're gonna bring in about 30 yards of dirt. I'm gonna have it brought in with a dump truck and dumped in a pile. I'm gonna rent a bobcat for one day. We're gonna lay all the pipe on the ground, all the wire on the ground, everything set out the way that it's supposed to be, glue everything up, and take that bobcat and just start dumping dirt. It'll put in 250 feet of berm in straight lines. Why straight lines? I'll get to that in a second. It'll be on water, on irrigation, We'll get it on timers, straight out of the gate. That one, there's no reason not to. And it'll go off. It'll water itself at night. We'll put cover crop down. It'll take extremely quickly, high-quality soil mix making those berms. It'll firm those berms up and keep them from eroding. And into those berms, every two feet, I'm going to plant a black locust tree. Those black locusts will establish themselves. We've tested that here in some of our harsh conditions. They survive everywhere. With irrigation and that kickstart of that organic matter being brought in, they'll get their roots down into that that limestone, they'll start to eat it with humic acid, and they'll start to convert it to subsoil. And we'll put shade on that field. Not the whole field, 60% of it. And there's enough irrigation in place then to complete a ring around it so that there's berms all around it, and there's only a little bit in the center that's not being constantly irrigated. Now, the berms are going to be about 60 feet apart, so that irrigation won't reach between them but we'll start to put shade on it. We'll start to, 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 to be able to build things up. And as I can, I'll bring in wood mulch at 10 yards a shot. And just, it's easy, it's cheap, it's simple. Spread it out in between. And start pushing those birds now through a shaded, irrigated system. And eventually we'll, we'll, we'll take it over to some, some productive trees. But in the end, if I end up with black locust, 15 feet tall, on 10-foot spacings, and that's it? And I shade that field, and I, I, I convert that into something that works as pasture for the ducks? It's a win, and it's cheap. It's pipe, it's dirt, it's 200 bucks to rent the machine for one day. It's probably another $200 in wire and, and a controller and solenoids to, to run the irrigation. And that's it. The trees are $0.80 cents a piece. And if some of them, if more of them die than I want to die, I can buy some more 80 cent trees and put them in there. And it will radically transform that piece of ground. And I can put that in and I can walk away from it for two years. I can just not worry about it. Two years from now I can take out every other tree with a chainsaw. And start a chop and drop regime. And that's how I have to do that. And... that is actually not, would not have been a bad way at all to have done the three quarter acre food forest in my east side, even though the land's not as bad. But I wanted what I wanted now, and I didn't have the patience. And now that I've done that and seen the positives and negatives of it, I'm willing to have the patience elsewhere. Because um, in 2016, full focused on that food forest in zone one only. That's going to be 95% of what we do. The pond, Not sure what it will become at this point. You know, I got myself into that by believing someone that said they could do a job that didn't really want to do the job. I took my money and I still haven't come out and said who the guy is. I still haven't done what I think I need to do, which is basically warn the market about him. But I'm trying not to be, I'm trying not to be a resentful dick in that matter. Um, but I'll just tell you this, don't use Thomas Stockponds just for you guys. I don't know if I'm going to put anything online or not, but that's the company, Thomas Ponds, here in North Texas. And I would tell anybody you know in this area, don't use that guy, because he's the guy that did this to me. And someone else came in and did what they could with it, it's pretty shallow and it's pretty small, but it works. And it started to turn into something pretty beautiful. But it won't ever be what I wanted. It won't be something I can put my ducks in every, you know, every other day or anything like that. It's going to be something that, like, they may never really get in there. I don't know. I mean, I might let them in there once once a month just as a, a party or something because uh, I don't think that will actually hurt anything. But other than that, they're not going to be in there. I'm going to have to fence that out, so I've got to put a fence in now because the pond's there. If I could rewind and not do the pond, I would rewind and not do the pond, but it's there now, and now I'm going to make the best of it that I can. And ducks and more ducks, and what I'm learning from them. So, I, I, I look at these birds every day and I realize what an amazing thing they are for this property. They're probably the one thing that you could come into a property like this and within six to seven months be in a profitable operation. The only thing. And it's not that hard to do. Um, we'll probably add more, even though I just added more. You know, I did a head count today and I think I have 109 ducks plus the babies, the new babies. And there's a lot of drakes in there, and there's a lot of muscovies in there, and they're going to get pared down this fall. That's another thing I'm kind of waiting for all this hokum, uh, this hoopla to be done. Uh, it's before I add processing ducks to it as another thing. But that, the, the drake count needs to come down. That will help our overall bottom line on profitability. But these birds are so happy in this environment. They really are. And they're so soft on the land compared to something like a chicken. And I just enjoy being with them. And you can tell that they enjoy being with me, especially the babies now. I've got these babies trained. They're better at going to bed than the adults are. And I come out in the morning, and those things are overjoyed. Here he is. He's coming. He's bringing sprouts. It's It's an incredible way to live, to live with animals that actually want you in their systems. Oh, let me, let me back up real quick to the uh, the, the West Pasture and the straight lines, because I said I would explain to you why I'm doing straight lines there uh, instead of going, like, on contour, swell-based uh, berms. So I have to look at the totality of the functionality of the property, and that is the best place to have large numbers of people park. Um, and by doing straight lines, I'll actually create, really, a parking lot. It'll be obvious for a student coming in how to park as far as how to line up. And eventually... What you'll have over there with these, these, these overstory locusts is this really gorgeous place to park and camp. So it will be functional for the ducks, but you know, three, four times a year it'll be this wonderful camping area as well. And then the locust trees also serve an additional function stack because it's only a couple weeks out of the year, but they'll be a great bee forage plant. The bees will be over there like crazy during that period of time. On top of it, we don't burn a lot of wood here, but we do burn some. Coppicing those locusts will provide us as much wood as we need every year, and we'll never have to plant another tree, and we'll never cut one down except when we want to remove one to get the spacing we're looking for. So a lot comes from that straight line arrangement and I'm learning that in some situations those straight line arrangements work as well as they used to in my head but then I learned about contour and then they went away and there's a place for everything is what I'm learning so back to ducks ducks and more ducks and what I'm learning from them so in all these problems on this property I, I know sometimes I, tr- I sound probably like I'm whining about it I'm not really whining about it, I just when people look at it I want them to understand what we've had to deal with to get as far as we have so fast because we really have. I walk through that food forest now, and I realize that a person walking through there that doesn't know what I know about it would just go, it doesn't look like much. And I'm like, well, there's this, there's that. I, I identify like 20 plants in like this little 50-foot area. And like a 50-square-foot area. And I, I realize like all these processes are going on and happening. And I, I, I keep looking to the ducks and say, how can I channel your natural behavior uh, in a way that will keep this going? And I realized like, okay, they're just looking at me like, dude, we're doing that for you already. Right now, here. So then how do I take this to the places where they're not doing that for me and get them doing that for me? And How do I identify the places where they are compacting soil from from the way the land form is, like an end of a berm where it's getting too dried out and they're up and down it and they're wearing that area out or certain areas where it gets wet and they do too much of their drilling and they make a, a compacted muddy area. How do I channel that behavior to correct that? So in spite of the fact I'm going to tell you about my dream duck property now, Um, taking all these lessons and figuring out how would I do this if I had the perfect property and the perfect opportunity, we understand like, I'm still trying to figure out how I can do more with this property, let alone something else. But I'd love to design this property someday. It may be the case that I design it for somebody out there uh, that wants to make the investment in their own property and just have me help them design it. Uh, Because I don't know that I have the time to manage a property that I don't live at, and I really don't want to leave where I am now. I'm pretty happy with what I have. Um, Because even if I got my neighbor's property to the rear of my neighbor's property to the the west, it, it would not work here when I tell you what I would need. I want a minimum five acres to do this design. I want good soil, and I want ponds to be easy to build, and I want it to be relatively flat. It can be somewhat rolling, but not deep and steep and hilly. It needs to be relatively flat easy-to-do earthworks. Into that, I would put five paddocks. In each paddock, I would put a pond of around two-tenths of an acre. So I have eight-tenths of an acre dedicated to pasture and subo pasture and about two-tenths, or 20% water, which would give an overall 20% surface water to the t- total property, which I think would be about right here. I'd want a property where the ponds, if I'm going to be in the south anyway, could be relatively deep because I'd rather do a 2 uh, a two-tenth-of-an-acre pond that's twice as deep as a four-tenth-of-an-acre pond that's half as deep. It, it just works better from an evaporative standpoint and for so many other reasons. Uh, I would do the whole thing as a silvopasture system, which is a pasture system based on trees. So you have the tree savanna mimic, which is exactly what I'm doing on my west pasture with this kind of parking lot arrangement of the trees. But this I would do on a more contour-type system, feeding these ponds. So the ponds are being filled by the swales. But I'd be very mindful of the location of the swales so the swales didn't interfere with my fencing right from the beginning of the design with water access structure being the key things that I would think about in this design. Uh, I would do low cost Low fencing, I might consider going with a little bit higher fencing uh, if I want to put cattle in the system. This might really work with cattle very well as as well uh, in the tree overstory, I would go with things like pecans, apples, and plums uh, marketable easily marketable product, large trees though I, I I would be growing apples that are primarily for the hard cider market pecans it, it is what it is you don't really need to to say more about that. Uh, and plums, I, I would be thinking, um, you know, I, I really don't know what I would do with that yet. I just know that prop works here. So is there some niche you could fill with plum? And I put other things in there that would be for fodder, like mulberry and persimmon for the birds. Um, they just work well in this climate. Mulberry would be a great fodder crop. I'd make sure there's a few mulberries, few big mulberries in every paddock, because um, that's just... the free food source for those birds when those berries are in drop. And the the leaves are also a good fodder, very high-protein fodder, by the way, for them. Uh, I would support the system mostly with black locust, mimosa, and honey mesquite. Mimosa is just a uh, year-round apiary product for your bees, right? So mimosa, uh, I shouldn't say year-round. It's all summer long, those things flower, and it's a great bee tree. The black locust, all the great things I said about. Honey mesquite has its own incredible product with the seed pods being a, a very high quality product itself. And then the trimmings from that are a great fuel wood and cooking wood. So between that and locust, you've got your fuel knocked out, done. Uh, likely I would develop this as a leader follower system with cattle in front of the ducks and you wouldn't have that many cattle on a, on a private property this big. Um, I'd have to, you know, based on the property, it's, it's carrying capacity, et cetera, but you're probably producing three, three cows, a year or something like that on a property like this, and you've got the cattle two paddocks ahead of the duck. So if you have your ducks in in, in paddock C right now, uh, and they're following back to A, your your cows are in A. So when your cows move to to D, or let's say one, or you said five acres. So let's say your ducks are in, in paddock one, your cattle are in, in paddock three, and then your 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 cattle are going to move to to paddock four, your ducks are going to move to paddock two. So if you're moving them on a weekly frequency there, the the cow manure is sitting there attracting flies and doing its thing for a week before the ducks get in there and dig into it. And ducks will do things with cow patties that you don't want to see, but it's very useful to the land. And you should be able to run the system like that very, very well. I know people would start saying, let's stack other things in there like pork and all. And I don't know, maybe. But I think that the the cow-duck system would just be bang-on simple and require very little additional infrastructure. Because even your low fencing, all you have to do then is run a hot wire along it and your cattle are taken care of. And if you want to keep the cows from eating your trees, you just run one hot wire along your tree lines and that keeps the cows out of the trees. I would say that this system would be likely better off without cattle for the first two seasons. And you might even not put ducks into it until the second season if you really wanted to kind of get it kick-started right. Um, I would put irrigation in, in this climate along the tree lines. I wouldn't try to irrigate the whole thing. Um, but between the, the, the ponds creating seepage, the swale based system, and the irrigation kind of kick to those swales and those trees, uh, you'd very quickly get this thing very stable even through our droughts here. Um, And it's likely we could take quail aviaries large scale on a system like that, but I don't know enough about them yet. I'm going to learn from this project I just outlined. Uh, And then I have to end this with everything I just said could be wrong. It could be a terrible idea. I, I don't think it is. I think I've got enough experience with ducks now and enough experience with this climate and enough experience with their needs and enough experience with harsh land that taking it to land that's ideal would be easy. But I still have to remain open to the fact that that could be a terrible plan. Now, mathematically, it works out. I, I know what I can run on ducks on there, uh, and I have one company alone right now that would take eighty dozen a week, eighty dozen a week. Thirty—that's thirty-six thousand, forty thousand dollars worth of duck eggs a year. They just will buy them. We don't, even want to keep, we don't have to, no arguing about the price. No, if you have them, we'll buy them. Just that's one customer. So, I mean, I think I could run. I think I conservatively could run 400 ducks on that property, 400 layers, and probably 50 drakes. Because the the flocks are more balanced with some drakes in it. There's no doubt about that. Uh, You don't need as many as I think maybe some people would think you need, but, you know, uh, 40, 10% drakes I think would be a nice number. That's not going to get all your girls bred, but you don't really all need to be bred unless you're hatching eggs, and then you can... Can find certain birds to certain areas to make sure you have full fertility when you are doing that. So um, that's a system I'd line out, and I have a lot more thoughts on it, but I am going to let it go at this point because I don't want to, you know, make a second podcast basically today. But uh, about how to do reproduction and how you use muscovy's for that, and having a broody, uh, a brooding area. I've learned about how important that is now to get the brooding ducks away from the rest of the flock because young. Mo- we had a young mother this year that basically killed two of her own babies by accident from being panicked and squishing them. And so I you know you, you continue to learn. But the the whole point of today's show again is the thinking. Like how do you get this far into something like this and, and be pretty confident that these next steps are going to work and it's because of 3 years of success and failure. Um it's 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 a willingness to accept feedback from the land. Um my property tells me every day whether or not something's going to work. Because I'll do something and the property says, you know what, no. No. This area is not, if you want this to work here, you have to do more. It's not going to happen. You know, and then I look at the surrounding property where nothing is being done. That's extremely valuable to me because it's a variable. I can look at it and say, hey, you know what, this is working. Uh, this is no worse than where nothing was done at least i 've not damaged or in some cases this is actually worse like that that fallow empty place over there that nobody 's touched for four years is better than this i 've actually gone backwards here and, and we need to be willing to accept that feedback and say, okay, I get it I understand um, i 'll accept that feedback and i 'll make corrective action there and, and that 's the only way that we 're going to get ahead and that 's again that 's how you run a business that 's how you build a community that's how you should be looking at if you're going to be politically involved that's how you should look at politics like am i actually going to get this done and if i do is it going to matter and because even though i've become politically agnostic doesn't mean that everybody should be in fact the fact that some people are politically agnostic or politically active make what the politically active agnostic people do more valuable the, the two places have a, a, a coexistence, so to speak. So, I kind of want to finish with explaining that because I think it's important when people say, you know, well, Jack, what if everybody did what you did and just walked away from the system? Well, that would work, right? It would work perfectly because the system would fall apart and it would have to rebuild itself based on freedom and liberty. So, that would be great, but it's not going to happen. Well, what if so many people walked away that we lost control completely of the political side? And they just, you know, de- de- decimated the, the anti-politicals. Nah, probably not going to happen either. The numbers are nowhere near there. But what actually happens is people that step outside the system start demonstrating what can be done when you ignore the system. And this takes people that are still in the system, and they look over and go, well, "Why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we all doing that?" You can't because there's all these reasons you can't. And and the people in the system then change. Chasing the success of those who've left it. And, and, and that only works if there's people that are active enough in their lives to make those changes happen. But in, in almost every instance of major political change, it was anarchistic activity that caused change. I don't care if it's, you know, think about our history segment today. Slavery. Slavery. It it, it wasn't politics that changed. It was people that started breaking the law that started to show the underbelly of how evil the institution was that eventually caused political change. If you look at the Civil Rights Movement, it was women, because it wasn't just Rosa Parks. In fact, she was not really the – I won't go there, but just say there's somebody else, and if you want to research it for yourself and learn something, that did that first, that said, I'm not going to sit in the back of the bus. And the Rosa Parks became you know, like a figurehead for that activity. Um, that was against the law. That was anarchistic. Okay? Oh, no, there's change in the system. No, the, the action was, I will not abide by what the system says. And that drove change from within the system. And people like me that maybe you're frustrated with because I've said, I'm done. I'm going to go out here and do this. You, you have to understand, there's always going to be a very small number of us. Your your fear that everybody will do it is unfounded. It's not going to happen. Most people want more government. Most people want more control. They do. And all you have to do is just look at these these stupid Facebook debates, and no matter what side the, the person's taking, in the end what they're saying is, well, I want more regulation and control and rules. I just want them to be the way that I want them. So the only way you move that needle at all is to make them want Less control, but not realize that's what they're actually asking for. And I would like as many of you as possible to join me, but those of you who are effective in the political realm, you're not going to. And that's fine. There's a place for you there. There's a place for all of us. Um, i got to say, I really encourage you. I don't know that I'll ever go again unless they ask me, because they haven't for a couple of years now, but um, Liberty Forum in New Hampshire. I, I really encourage everybody to get to that at least once, because what you'll see is a total... Complete anti-systems anarchist, like with holes that you can see through, piercings in their body, sitting next to a state legislature rep. Uh, who They're both part of the same movement. And they get along. They get along, they get along, they get along one is not going to pick up and start doing the other's work, so to speak. But they both respect the work that the other does. They just choose to engage at it in different levels. Okay, That's why that movement works. That's why so much progress has been made in New Hampshire from that relatively tiny group of people. We can learn from that, but that also requires the whole, even though it is my circus and it is my monkey, so let's pretend it's not for 10 minutes. Let's sit back and pretend it's not and figure out what I really should be doing in this engagement. And sometimes the answer is, I shouldn't be engaging at all. I should go do something different. And, and, and that is a withdrawal from the political spectrum for me. For you, it may be a withdrawal from something else and actually engaging in something that I wouldn't engage in. It's okay. There's room for all of us. And it's this systems-level thinking that lets us decipher that. And it lets you start to recognize things in people. Recently, we had Nicole Foss on. And I'm like, oh, that's me 10 years ago. It, it's, that's totally me 10 years ago. And in everything you're saying is right, it's just that what you're articulating as being the result of those things being right that doesn't quite meet with historical context because you were there 10 years ago, you can see it and you just go, that's awesome. You don't even worry about it. You're like, that'll progress. That'll become, and and, and that person, when you see a person like that, you probably go, oh, that person's going to eventually just fly right past me and figure out where to go next. You, you know it. And that's, that's what you hope for. Like, as you get older, you want more and more people to just blow by you. And, 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 and that's also what I'm trying to do here with, with TSP guys. I mean, The reason I know that this community is going to continue to grow and just crush it, really, really crush it, is that when I talk to you guys and I tell you about another member of this community that's successful, your reactions, 100% of the time so far, and any person I've met face-to-face and had a conversation about somebody else being successful with, are completely the opposite of the majority of society. The majority of society, when you tell somebody something like, well, so-and-so did this and they set up this business and two years later they've got it going and they're, they're, they're just kicking ass. You know what it is? It's always something like, well, it must be nice. Well, how'd they do that? There's a resentment. Even when people say they're not resentful, there's a, you can hear it. And so I wish I had that or whatever. When I tell somebody from this community about the success of another person in this community, do you know what they say? That's great. Good for them. I hope they keep having that success. That is not the American way anymore. The American way is resentment and bitterness and anybody that's doing better than you. And that is the most back word thinking you could ever have because you need lots of successful people so that you can be successful yourself. Because poor people don't buy your stuff. okay? They just don't. Not because they're not good people, because they don't buy your stuff. No poor person is going to come to my farm and pay $8 a dozen for duck eggs. They're not, and, and, and I'm not worried about that. I believe if we get enough successful people, we create upward mobility for those people. And, and again, that's systems level thinking. thinking. And, and that's what today's show is really all about. All these modifications, adjustments, and changes that I talk about today, that's the only way you become upwardly mobile. That's the only way you change your station in life. And sometimes that actually means making less money but having a lot more. And I don't mean, like, some ethereal, like, I am so much happier now. I mean, like, that's important. But, I mean, I know people for a fact that have a lower income today, but they have more of everything, including actual money. Because it's not what you earn, it's what you keep and small adjustments that allow you to keep more over time and allow you to spend less over time and allow you to spend less in taxation over time. I've seen people take their income and take a hit of 40%, but I've seen their lifestyle go up by 40% in every measurable way, including reserves of wealth. And, And this is how you get there, by saying, I'll continue to adapt and adjust And I'll continue to accept feedback and take that feedback. And sometimes, even when people are telling me something over and over again, I'll go, I'm sorry that you feel that way, but I I know my path. And then other times you'll go, that makes sense. I'm going to make that adjustment. And you have to be willing to stand through either one of those. And I'm going to finish up now. And I'm going to play, instead of a song today, something that I played last week, I'm going to play it again for you guys because I think a lot of you need to hear it. This is a a dramatic reading of the poem If by Rudyard Kipling. That's what I'm going to leave you with today. Because if you can do these things, then you'll be able to think at that critical level. You'll be able to adapt, adjust, and overcome. And you will be able to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
1: too good, nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same... If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you except will, which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you but none too much... If you can fill the unforgiving minute with sixty seconds' worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And, which is more, you'll be a man, my son.